Hey guys, time to go over some uh, weekly Seek Outside announcements. Um, first things first, we got our 100th podcast episode coming up, so make sure you guys are, are thinking of questions um, to send in to us uh, because we're going to be doing a Q&A uh, where it's live. You call in, you ask your question, we'll answer it. Um, so it should be pretty fun. Uh, that's the first announcement. The second announcement is Seek Outside. Uh, in coordination with Colorado BHA and the Western Slope Conservation Center is going to be doing a tree planting date on August 19th uh, of this year. We're going to be doing some, uh, going to be volunteering, replanting some trees in some clear cut areas that were, you know, sold for timber. Um, So it it should be a fun time. Uh, You can find out details on Western Slope Conservation Center's website. I think we'll probably be putting uh, some some media out on Instagram and stuff like that coming up soon here. But yeah, it should be be really fun. We're just going to go up there, plant some trees. Uh, I think we might uh, go to a a brewery or something afterwards, but this is going to be in the Grand Junction uh, area. So anybody anybody in, in the Western Slope of Colorado, uh, we'd love to have you come by that. But uh, anyway, yeah, let's uh, get on with the podcast episode. We got Joel Webster um, of TRCP on the podcast. He's a super fun, knowledgeable guy to have on the podcast. We talked a lot of stuff about policy um, and and some of the, the big things that are coming up. Um, so make sure you listen closely to this episode because it has a lot to do with public lands. So hopefully uh, you guys enjoy and have a great day. Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. And then you should, you think that's bad? See Ryan on the phone in the office. Some people are just wired that way. Well. Cool, man. Um, yeah, so we got Joel Webster on the podcast today. Uh, Joel, you want to give us a little intro on who you are, what you do, who you work for? Sure, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Joel Webster. I'm the uh, Vice President of Western Conservation at the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. I uh, live and work out of Missoula, Montana. Um, I grew up out west. I've been here in Missoula about, for about 20 years. Um, TRCP, we are a uh, conservation organization with a mission to guarantee all Americans quality places to hunt and fish. Uh, we've got actually about a dozen of us out west um, in eight western states. Uh, we've got another office down in Denver as well with a few people and then um, an office in, in Washington, D.C., as well as a few staff in the east, um, both in the southeast and northeast regions. So. Um, we work on conservation issues affecting uh, hunters and anglers, public lands, private lands, water, marine fisheries, and climate. Uh, most of our Western team um, is working on public land issues as well as water issues, and uh, happy to be here today. Yeah, I got to say, man, your organization probably has the best um, like logo or um like theme sentence i'm forgetting the word for it right now but it's very strong and it's very representative of of what you guys do and i feel like it's a good uh 
you know, it, it sets the tone correct for all the great work that you guys are doing. So whoever thought of that, you got to give them props. <laughs> well, it wasn't me, but I certainly appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's a busy time for you right now. Um, at least in the eyes of myself. And, um, I think a lot of people have the understanding that now is as important of a time as ever, uh, in terms of conserving wildlife and, you know, fighting the good fight just in general. Um, the, I think we're going to get into some policy stuff here, obviously. Um, the first, uh, big kind of policy matter that I want to get some information on is the Mapland Act. Um, so this is an act that was just passed probably what, like four or five months ago, some sometime in there? In April, uh, end of April. So right, right, okay. right towards the start of May. So just <clears throat> oh. in a couple of months now. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you want to break it down for us? What, uh, what are we gaining from this act being passed? Yeah, sure. And this is really exciting. Um, I mean, for me personally, having been involved in it since the beginning, but also for, you know, public land, sportsmen and women, uh, basically starting, this all goes back to the work that TRCP did with ONX on landlocked public lands, where we worked with ONX between 2018 and 2020, um, looking at how many acres of landlocked public lands there are uh, across 22 states, actually, we, we looked at and found over 16 million acres of landlocked state and federal and county lands across um, those states, with most of it being in the West. So there's like 15.87 million um, in 13 Western states that we, we looked at. But anyway, through that process, you know, one of the things that came up, um, and this actually, I'll, I'll tell a little story here. Um, is we rolled out our first landlocked report and I actually got a call from somebody with the Forest Service and they were worried about, you know, there's been a lot of conversion of traditional like forest land um, where people like traditionally like, you know, sort of timber farm type corporate lands being sold off and, and broken up for um, like subdivisions and things like that. And I actually got a call from somebody with the Forest Service and they were worried about a lot of these private lands um, being sold off that were adjacent to they're, they're public lands, and they're actually asking us if we had an idea of where they had access across those private lands to their old own holdings, which was kind of crazy to me, right? That they're asking us if we knew where they had access, and uh, and started digging into this issue, and, and came to find out that um, the Forest Service plus other agencies like the Bureau of Land Management have tens of thousands of access rights that they've acquired over the last hundred years. Um, that, that, that guarantee their access across private land as well as the public access. Um, and those things are still on paper filing, filing cabinets at local offices. And so in order to find out if they had access to a road, they actually had to pull the file and study and interpret the easement um, to make that determination. And so um, one, of the, one of the things that MapLan will do is require that all those easements, there's about 50,000 of them that remain on paper file, that those become digitized and made publicly available. And so that way both the agencies and the public can actually pull up their app and click on a road and it'll say whether or not they have the right to cross that in terms of whether or not it's a public easement. There's other types of public roads, so it's, it won't clarify everything, but it's going to go a long way. So that's one of the things that the bill will do. Um, second, if you ever, you know, if you're ever using your app, um, whichever one it is, 
oftentimes you look at road and trails on those apps, you look at your paper map, and there's no real information as to whether or not you can drive on it, uh, what kind of vehicle it's open to, right? You're like, I've got a mountain bike, can I go down this? I've got a four-wheeler, or I want to just, you know, be on foot. I want to make sure there's not going to be machines on it. Um, like, it's really hard to find that information sometimes about what those rules are, and so you've got to go out there and, like, read the sign on the ground um, and go ground tr truth it to actually, you know, confirm or not whether or not you can go there, um, which that's, like, sort of a waste of your time, right? It uses a lot of your time. Um, and sometimes you're just sort of chasing your tail. You feel like, well, what this, this bill does as well is it requires that the agencies, all of the federal agencies that own land, so the Forest Service, the BLM, the Park Service, the Fish and Wildlife Service, which has refuges, the Bureau of Reclamation and Army Corps of Engineers as well, which, you know, they control a lot of the lands around reservoirs, um, that they, within a four-year period, um, digitize, you know, road and trail information that shows what types of vehicles are allowed on what roads during what times of the year. And so that way, theoretically, in the future, you should be able to pull up whatever sort of map you have electronically and, and click on that route, and it'll tell you what, what you can drive on that road when, which will be super helpful in terms of First off, if you're out there, just knowing the rules, um, but also in terms of scouting and, and not having to spend as much time um, going and looking at a trailhead to see whether or not you can use it. So super excited, and all that stuff's gonna, supposed to be done in the next four years, and so now we're really focused on um, you know, reaching out to the agency folks who are gonna be responsible for actually seeing this done to make sure that they do a good job. Yeah, how it can be helpful. No, that yeah that that's awesome um are they also going to have to is there are there any clauses in the bill about having to um disclose like when certain roads are open and when they're closed because one of the more frustrating things that i've experienced just kind of in this realm is there's a there's a road kind of close to us here in grand junction that um opens it's supposed to open may 1st right um but i've gone up there multiple times may 3rd you know may 4th may 5th even and the gate is still closed and so i'm just curious is this going to be something that they have to disclose that and in turn them disclosing it digitally um, i would assume it would probably hold those folks to a to a higher standard to make sure that that it that gates open on the date that it says is that is there a clause in there about that i so what it does do yes is it requires them to show the seasonal use information about roads or trails and so if an area is closed on winter range right to protect wintering elk um and it has an open date of march or may 15th or whatever like it should say that now if the agency actually doesn't get down there and um and open that gate like they're supposed to i mean that's that's a separate issue um and, and that's an interesting accountability issue i mean i know sometimes they extend those closures if you know i don't know about the federals but I, I about the federal level but i know like where i live there's some county land that is closed in the winter for elk and they will sometimes extend those closures if we have like a late spring or late winter um and uh and and so um in those cases yeah they'll extend that and this i don't know that they'll have time to update you know like a gis layer but um but that is a whole nother consideration i mean i think and that's one thing, too, just to sort of point out now that I'm mentioning county lands, like this doesn't affect state or like local agencies or municipalities or anything like that. Um, it's only a, it's only applicable to federal lands. And so if you have like a state wildlife management area or state trust lands, 
Um, it doesn't, you know, there's nothing that that's uh, focused on those agencies. And that's another place where, you know, improvements could be made in terms of providing information to the public on, on access. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. I was just curious because that for me, it's been two years in a row now where I've gone up there actually to turkey hunt and the road's been closed. I'm like, oh man, I drove 45 minutes to get up here and the freaking road's closed. So, um, but I understand. I'd they, be, they got, they got I'd be frustrated plenty. too. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So, so just getting back to the, to the easements, um, so you said that these were traditionally forest service or, um, wildlife agency easements, you know, for these folks to be able to access these public lands that otherwise are inaccessible. Um, and I heard that you said that they're also publicly accessible. Is that all of them? Like all 50,000 of these easements? So they're not all open to the public. They have to, some of them are just for administrative use. And so as part of the process of digitizing these, they need to look at the language um, that basically separate those that are just for administrative use and those that are for administrative and public use. You know, I think the vast majority of them are open to the public, um, but that's a process they're going to have to go through. Um, it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, I know just sort of thinking about your own experiences, right, out driving around, um, and you oftentimes will come up upon like a two-track or a gravel road that goes across private land, and it's not marked, um, but it's also just not clear as to whether or not it's open or closed to the public, and, and um, you know, some of those are totally, absolutely public roads, and some of them aren't. There's also, you know, circumstances where a private landowner will bluff the public and post, um, you know, public routes by basically putting no trespassing up and, um, you know, having factual information about whether or not it's a public road is really important in terms of being able to get those no trespassing signs taken down. There's a couple of, you know, circumstances that I'm, I've personally been involved with where I've, um, you know, found some, some gravel roads that cut through private land and they look like public roads, uh, but they're just posted keep out. And so I reached out to the agency um, person I know who is responsible for keeping these easement records and he looked them up for me and said that is a public road. And so then, you know, reached out to the district ranger to let them know um, that it was posted and so then they could go out and talk to them and get and pull those signs down. Um, but if you don't have that information, then you can't even report it. Now, I think it's sort of your call as to whether or not you want to try and cross it when it's posted. Um, I, I generally try and reach out to people first um, so they're not surprised by me. And also, you know, I, I don't really want to um, have that confrontation in the field if I can work it out ahead of time um, and they know I'm coming. And uh, But I think having that information um, is super important in terms of making sure that public roads stay open. Now, most people are good actors, but there's definitely going to be circumstances where you have private landowners that do not want the public using public roads. And these easement records, too, I mean, just to be clear, like this is not prescriptive use we're talking about here. Like these are like recorded with the deed of a property at the county courthouse. Um, those are rights owned by those agencies and they're permanent and um, they're not something that you can dispute or contest. Um, you can just hope that nobody knows about it and bluff. Yeah. If, if, <laughs> yeah. You know. 
Yeah. Um, well, so I was going to say like in, in that circumstance that, that you were talking about, right. Um, I'm sure you've gotten lots of feedback in the, you know, in the groundwork of trying to get this act passed. Um, have you found that a lot of these circumstances where there's a public easement that is posted as no trespassing, have you found that it's more often the case that the landowner knows that it's an easement and just doesn't want people to cross? Or is it more often the case that they just have no idea they bought it with the, the knowledge that um, it, it was their land and because there's no digital footprint on it um there was no way for them to tell was is there have you experienced either one of those more or less i mean i can't speak to the perspectives of individuals but i will say that when you purchase property or a house that will come up in the title report that easement will be in that documentation so um it is definitely something that they will have in front of them to read when properties are purchased right and I don't, i'm sure there's circumstances where properties have been in the family for a long time and haven't changed hands and maybe somebody doesn't know about it but if somebody buys a piece of land that comes up in the title report they know about it and uh that's that makes sense but, but I, I just feel like i've heard of of you know people that had no idea that there was a public easement on their property and you know then all of a sudden they get some guy you know bombing through on a four-wheeler and I've, I've heard of multiple occasions where that's been a confrontation now whether the landowner is lying about that or not uh who knows but uh, yeah i'm sure there have <clears throat> been circumstances where those easements weren't properly recorded and as a result you know the landowner did not know about it but as a general rule the vast majority of these right this stuff's rec recorded properly and when you buy a piece of property it's it will be included in that stack of paperwork it's, po it's possible that some folks just don't take a close look at that stuff though right yeah yeah um so as of right now all these uh easements are basically in a file cabinet of the, of the basement of some regional office of the Forest Service, right? Um, are there any cases that you know about where um, a public easement was lost because the the physical paper got burnt up or something like that, or or washed out in a flood? Are there any of those circumstances? You know, I'm not aware of a specific one, but I've heard that that kind of thing has happened. Um, and it's easy to imagine, right? You've got, I mean, it's not just one office too, right? You've got all these local offices where this stuff's sitting in the filing cabinet. But yeah, if you have some sort of a, a fire or a flood um, and those records are lost, you know, some of those will be gone forever. I mean, a lot of this stuff, again, is recorded at the county courthouse, right? But then going and actually, you know, sort of collecting that from the courthouse seems almost like an impossible chore. So if you don't have those um, compiled somewhere, like actually going out and finding them would be a lot of work. I mean, I guess you could go down to the courthouse and pay the money. Um, if you have a road that you're interested in like using, you could go pay the money, you know, to pull the title on that and, and see um, whether or not there's an easement there. But it's a pretty serious task, it seems like. So yeah, if those were lost, it'd be a, um, 
I mean, it'd be really awful because it's not easy to acquire those. And I think historically, you know, back when there were fewer people in the in the West and it's in the country in general, uh, you know, it was a lot easier for those agencies to acquire those access rights. They'd buy them for 20 bucks um, across somebody's ranch and, you know, in 1970 or 1950 or whatever. And, um, and it was, you know, it was something that was pretty easy to get done. But nowadays, um, just given how attitudes toward, um, you know, access have just changed, this has gotten to be more people and, and wildlife have become more valuable. Um, that stuff, there's still people willing to sell those access rights, but it takes more work to get them done. And, uh, and losing those, um, it just seems like a, a gut-wrenching thought. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, just thinking about all the access that could just be destroyed if, you know, somebody goes and, you know, if they have malicious intent and they want to, they have an easement that they know is going to be exposed, they could, they could get rid of it pretty easily. Um, pretty, pretty scary thought, but I'm glad that, glad that you guys are handling it. It's, that's a big, uh, big task. Cause you guys were kind of the main, uh, group behind getting this right. You, you guys in Onyx. Yeah. I mean, we were in the room at the very beginning there were a lot of other groups that helped get this across the finish line. Um, but really the, the need for this bill and, and some of the background to it, um, came out of our landlocked work. And, you know, we sat down with some lawmakers and, and discussed sort of some of the things that we discovered and, um, you know, help support them in, in pulling together, you know, a bill. So we were very excited about that. And also I just want to back up real quick too, and, you know, make it clear that, you know, the, the real focus of this is trying to resolve conflict and eliminate conflict, not to create conflict. I mean, I think we can point out examples of bad actors of people trying to block the public from using public roads and routes, but ultimately we're trying to create transparency and better information. And so, um, this benefits landowners too, where access rights don't exist. Um, and so there's more clarity, um, to help hopefully the, educate the public so they're not using routes that aren't open to the public, right. And creating conflict with landowners. And so it, it, it cuts both ways and, and hopefully it helps everybody being, you know, on the same page about where you can and cannot go. Yeah. Um, I also want to back up. I, I kind of forgot my last question that I want to ask. Um, what, so you said that you can still buy access to properties and it sounds like the, the cost has gone up. What, what does like, what say there's a forest or a road that, or a piece of public or private land, um, that, is the only way to get into a giant swath of, of public land. Um, and you guys or Onyx or whoever wants to go buy access to that public land, what is the cost typically? Yeah, um, and I, it'd probably be a, a land trust that would do this, like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. They do a lot of access work. They're you know one of the leaders on that. I think the way that this would work is, so the, the Federal Land and Water Conservation Fund, which is, um, you know, the most powerful program when it comes to opening access on public lands. Um, it actually guarantees that like 3% of all the funding in the program, which is a minimum of $27 million, must be used annually. So every year there's that much money on the table, possibly more, um, to open and expand access to where it's limited or, or doesn't exist on, on public lands. And so what the federal agencies are responsible for, required to do actually, is to pay fair market value for land. 
um, which creates some challenges to be honest with you because if you have let's say you got 10,000 acre chunk of Bureau of Land Management land out in eastern Wyoming and there's you know a few ranches around it and the only way to get access to it is to well maybe the, the most pragmatic way would be to buy an easement or a right-of-way so like a road corridor across the ranch that connects that landlocked parcel to an existing public road and let's say it's a quarter mile 60 foot wide strip and what's that easement worth on that land is probably not a lot um, and so let's say it's 500 bucks an acre to buy that road right or a thousand bucks an acre and you got to buy 10 acres um, so it could be 10,000 bucks um, to buy that which now that landowner is going to have you know Joe Public driving up and down that road um, you know till the end of time and and so as a result one of the things we're actually running into nowadays is that's just not enough compensation for a lot of these landowners to want to deal with the headaches of the public you know leaving gates open driving their four-wheelers where they shouldn't you know doing this stupid stuff at you know 11 o'clock at night or whatever and so um, I mean that's one of the issues I think that's preventing some of these road easements from being purchased is um, some of the appraisal limitations that basically prevent the agencies from paying um, more money for that access um, is, is making it less enticing for those landowners to sell. They might want to, they might be willing to, but is 10 grand enough to deal with these headaches? Maybe not, but I'd maybe do it for 50 grand or whatever. And um, when you look at the value of access these days, like, you know, 10,000 acres or so of, of land that you could open up, that's worth something, isn't it, right, if you can't get there right now? And so we've got to be able to find a way to, to better compensate these landowners to make those lands accessible that, um, that I think sweetens it for them and so they're more willing to sell this stuff. Now, with that said, there's always people out there who support public access and there's always, um, you know, folks out there who are, you know, they're willing to, to do what it takes to, to open lands, but I think we'd have more success if, um, if we could find ways to, to sweeten it for them. Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I have always thought about, you know, there's, there's the Unlawful Enclosures Act, right, which basically keeps folks from <clears throat> essentially keeping people out of public lands. And it, it's kind of vague when you read it. Um, but I've always wondered, does the government ever kind of use that to leverage um, you know, if, if they have some landowner that is just like, I'm absolutely not going to sell road, this, this road corridor to you guys. Is there any way for the government to kind of leverage that? Um, to if there's the a swath of public sell, land? To force the landowner yeah. to sell? Yeah. I mean, yeah. they have the legal right to do that, but politically it's untenable, so they don't. And they won't. Okay. Um, and, and we haven't yeah. asked them to. I don't think other groups... I mean, really, the... I think if the federal government, like what they used to do when they built dams, right, you know, um, they'd use eminent domain to, to purchase people's lands and then they'd flood the family farm and they'd, you know, they're still mad about it 100 years later. Like that, the ability to do stuff like that is really, um, those times are in the past. And, and, and really the way that the Land and Water Conservation Fund and, and federal acquisitions are being done, especially when it comes to public lands, it has to do with voluntary seller um type arrangements but believe me like there are plenty of 
I think property owners out there who are willing to to do the right thing. And I know we often hear about the bad apples, right? The, the guys who are anti-public land and um, are doing everything, anti-public access and are doing everything they can to block it. Well, there's also this whole other group of people that are, I think are pro-public access and they're willing to do the right thing. The question is, is like, how do we arrange these programs in such a way that it provides a real benefit to them financially, benefits them in a way that it, you know, it brings them to the table so they're willing to make a deal. And, and that's really what we need to focus on. And I know that there's issues out there like corner crossing and I don't want to, um, you know, that's a whole separate issue and debate where there's still um, uncertainty about where, you know, it's a gray area between where private property rights end and where public, you know, property rights begin, right? Public access rights begin, and that's not determined. Um, and that's what these court cases are sort of figuring out, like this stuff going on in Wyoming, which is a whole separate issue. But when it comes to actually, um, you know, acquiring land from landowners, we're really focused on um, folks sitting down at the coffee table and, and, and finding a way that works that's, that's good for the public, but also good for the landowner. Yeah. You know what I just thought about with the whole corner crossing thing? Why don't, um, why doesn't like RMEF or whoever is, or uh, the Land Water Trust, why don't they focus on just buying like the two feet to the left or right of the corner? That way there's like a little tiny corridor and there's no, uh, no airspace um, issues. Have, have they thought about that? I mean, I, I don't know what, their thinking is on this. I think that there are probably places where buying um, land next to that corner makes sense. I, I think there's probably places where it doesn't though. Um, I mean, thing about corner crossing that is interesting to me is that, I mean, theoretically, like this example that everybody's talking about in Wyoming, you know, th there was a corner with a corner pin in it, right? And it was relatively level ground, and so it was easy to cross over where that corner was. It was easy to find it. But there's a lot of places that aren't surveyed, and there's a lot of places where the terrain is so rough that even if corner crossing were legal or determined to be legal, like crossing at that corner is still not feasible. Um, and so I think that it's probably looking at one parcel or individual parcels for um whether or not that's even a possibility but where it would make a measurable difference in terms of improving access based on the, the the ground and what it looks like i do know though that um you know like state walk-in access programs the uh there's a number of state agencies you know i think all of the state agencies in the west except for like nevada because it's almost all public land have a state walk-in access program where they lease land I don't want to say lease land, but they basically lease access rights from landowners to make those lands accessible to the public during hunting season, um, like the block management program in Montana. Well, they've really focused on um, enrolling lands that, um, you know, that can also open up public lands, you know, behind those, those private lands. And so those programs have been really effective um, at making landlocked lands accessible, including those checkerboarded lands um, in question. So I think that's a great way to go about the issue. I'm sure, though, to your point, that there are some corners that they could buy an acre or whatever and, um, and create a pathway across that corner that'd make complete sense. But I would imagine every corner is different and you got to look at it based on its merits. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was just wondering, you just buy the two feet to the left or right of the corner and you're good to go. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, 
Um, so really well. I got, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just market, make a little funnel. Um, all right. So I got, I got two more questions on the map land act and then we can, we can move on to, uh, the, um, recovering America's wildlife act. Cause that's another big one. Um, the, the first question I had about the, uh, map land act is, is there going to be some sort of enforcement process or, um, like boots on the ground process of ensuring that these, uh, easements are either kept up to where, you know, the road is actually usable. Cause I'm sure if there's some easement that nobody's known about for, you know, 150 years, it, the road could have just grown over, right. Um, gotten all grassy and, and treed up. Um, is there going to be some sort of process in place ensuring that these easements are actually usable by the public? I think there's going to, that's a really good question. And I think, I wouldn't assume that these all have roads on them. I would imagine that there were, they're probably the ones that are lost, the ones people don't know about, are circumstances where the Forest Service maybe acquired an easement with the intention to build a road and then never did. Um, mm. My guess is there are circumstances out there like that. Um, you know, I know there's also ones that are trails um, or they used to be roads and now it's just an old road bed. You know, I think some of these, you're going to have to walk, right? I don't think just because there's an easement there, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be open for vehicles. And really, the place where that's going to get sorted out is with local transportation planning. So, you know, what are the allowances in the easement that the agency has the ability to do, right? Do they have the ability to have a road there? Or is it, you know, is it, is it a, are there any restrictions on what kind of transportation can occur in there? Um, but also, does it make sense to build a road? I mean, some of these, it might just make sense for folks to be able to travel down. And what I'm hopeful of is that when this information's made publicly available, you can pull out your app and it'll highlight where these easements are. You click on it and then you go to it and you can walk down it or drive down it, depending on what makes sense. But some of these, you're just mm -hmm. going to have to walk. Um, it doesn't necessarily give you the right to yeah. drive down them as much as... They are open to the public, though, right? If it's a public easement, it's a public route. It is part of the agency's transportation system, which just like on a closed road on National Forest Land, you have the right to walk down that. Um, in a lot of these places, that's, that's what it'll be like. Or you could drive, potentially. Okay, cool. All right, last question. What, uh, what's the estimate of uh, how many acres of public land that just having access to these easements is going to open up that was <laughs> I, wish I, I, I guess knew. the land was i guess the <laughs> yeah i guess the land was already available right but um you guys don't have any estimates of like oh man uh this easement that nobody knows about is going to open up x amount of public land you you know until it's um until this stuff's mapped, we're not going to know. I mean, some of these we don't know about. I think, Yeah. you know, I've, I've been made aware of some of them. And, I mean, some of them do access some pretty significant chunks of landlocked public land. But other ones, they more, like, allow you up a drainage, right? So you might have a big chunk of forest and, like, a national forest. Let's say it's a low, low national forest here in Montana. And, and there's a whole bunch of roads, right, that enter that forest. But there might be a drainage that man, you just can't get into without walking 10 miles because 
the nearest access point is way down the road and it's just it's the terrain is tough like you're just not going to do it but there's a there's an old road that goes up the gut um that basically is posted or you just don't know that it's open um that 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 this bill will will basically daylight that's a public route and uh i think there's going to be some examples like that there's also going to be some places where it's like it leads to a 200 acre parcel um and uh and so it's not like a huge amount of land but hey it might have a bunch of turkeys on it or something or some white-tailed deer and uh and in that case it's there's real value there as well but again like i i do think that um it's not just going to be I mean, most of these are probably already identified as public or they're just poorly marked and this is going to provide clarity and there's no dispute. And so I do think that these areas of conflict um, where they're like these mystery routes that nobody knew about that all of a sudden become daylighted, those examples will exist, um, but they're not going to be the majority of them. I mean, there's going to be a handful of those and I think you can find them, but I don't, it's not like it's just going to you know, open Pandora's box of um, a bunch of posted routes are all of a sudden identified as public. But my guess is every forest has probably got an example or two of a posted road that is a public road and, and, and people are going to learn about it um, when, well, as this law is implemented and um, it'll clarify that. But it's also going to clarify places where you don't have access. And, um, and so, you know, that's part of it. Now, with that said, I just want to point out as well, I mean, there are there's such a thing as a county road, which is a, a county held easement across private land where the county like maintains the road. They plow it in the winter and things like that. And they, they, they blade it in the summer. Like those are public access routes as well that this bill is not going to address. Um, you know, and so there's, and there's also state roads. So like the state school institutional trust lands that, you know, a lot of the, all the Western states have, like those institutions own easements across private land as well, or the state wildlife agency that you're not going to be aware of. Um, and so it's not going to um, daylight all the access, but um, it, it's going to certainly help move things in the right direction. Okay. Is there, are you guys expecting any trickle down to the state level um, of different states passing similar bills? I'd love to figure it out. Um, like I know in the state of Wyoming, for example, uh, not this year, but the year prior, they passed uh, a law in the legislature that um, creates a new revenue stream. So when you buy your conservation license um, in the state of Wyoming from Wyoming Game and Fish Department, there's a fee on that that can be used for public access. And they have the ability as part of that to, to buy easements um, across private land to, to make public lands accessible. And I, I sure would, you know, we've asked them and, um, you know, we've looked at other states, you know, it, how can we help them, you know, pull together digital databases so this information's easy to find right and people know where they can and cannot go but it hasn't happened yet so well hopefully well i just want to say seek outside we thank you for all your hard work on getting this passed because it's just a cool thing you know i mean there's so many so it's just gonna make access easier make i mean i think uh kind of what you said about you know maybe now there's going to be that one road into that specific drainage that you just can't get into any other way that's going to be just as valuable even though it was already public and accessible i think it's still um you know it'll and the big thing here is hopefully it'll help spread people out a little bit more um with all the overcrowding on on public land so um definitely props to trcp and everybody else that was involved 
definitely a, a win for public land, that's for sure. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, especially early on when this information starts to trickle out, you know, those who are on top of it are probably going to have um, opportunities to go to places where there, there isn't any crowding um, before the rest of society catches on. So take advantage of it um, before everybody else figures it out. But I also think if you do find a circumstance where a landowner has posted, um, you know, a, a, a road, a public road illegally, I would, I would recommend that you contact your game warden as well as the local, you know, agency to talk to them about it before trying to cross that. Otherwise you're, I mean, just to make sure that you understand it correctly first and you're not breaking the law. But second, I, I think it'd be, it's a better approach to have them, you know, talk to the landowner than to go just busting across there and possibly having a bad conflict. So just something to think about. Yeah. Yep, for sure. All right. So recovering America's wildlife act. Um, you want to break this bill down for us, Joe? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think recovering America's wildlife act or RAWA, uh, it's been in the news you know, quite a bit lately. It's a, it's some legislation that's, you know, been around for a little while. And what it would do is inject an enormous amount of funding um, into fish and wildlife management by um, actually directing $1.4 billion a year or 1.3, depending on the bill, um, to state fish and wildlife agencies to, um, you know, prevent like 12,000 species, so species of greatest conservation needs, so non-game species, um, you know, like butterflies and salamanders and other, you know, species that are not, we think of as non-game species, but to prevent them from, you know, ever becoming listed under the Endangered Species Act. And um, this is a pretty amazing thing. I mean, you know, generally <clears throat> state fish and wildlife agencies are funded through um, hunting and fishing dollars. Um, you know, you go buy your, your hunting license, your fishing license, your you're funding, um, you know, those activities, those biologists and, and the work the state wildlife agencies do. And they have to manage all species, you know, both, you know, game species like deer and elk and, and trout and, and other things that, you know, hunters and anglers really care about, but also all these non-game species. And there's a lot of them. And um, there's just not enough money to go around. And, and also when you look at um, just Endangered Species Act recovery, you know, species generally when they get to be on the list, um, it's too late. I mean, species generally don't come off unless they've gone extinct. There's a few exceptions to that, right? Like the bald eagle um, and the wolf in certain areas. But generally when, when, when critters go on, they, they don't come off. And it's also really expensive once they're on and it becomes like a regulatory burden, which results in, in conflict. And so really what, what RAWAC could do is inject money that helps keep species populations up and, and vibrant and prevents them from ever ever having to be endangered so do you have any examples of like a species that might be um, affected by this bill if it were to pass yeah um i mean i can't really speak to like i don't really work on non-game species but you think about like 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 non-game fish, like chubs or darters, um, you know, butterflies that, and bees, like there's a lot of, you know, like bumblebees, like native species of bumblebees, um, that the, you know, the pollinators, um, there's a lot of bird species that are down. So I can't really speak, um, to the specific examples. It's not really 
something I focus on. But those are the kinds of species that would be affected by this, not the traditional game species that, um, you know, that we, we focus on, um, you know, so much in, you know, as a hunting and fishing sort of organization or, or just folks in the hunting and fishing space. But there's, there's like 12,000 of these species of greatest conservation need, um, you know, across the country. And, um, you know, this bill is as close as it's ever been um, to becoming law. And now is really, you know, the time. So it passed in the Senate. Um, it's bipartisan in both chambers. Uh, and the Senate is passed out of the Environment and Public Works Committee in the House. Um, it just passed the House um, on a 231 to 190 vote, um, including 16 Republicans. However, um, there were 42 Republicans that originally... Um, co-sponsoring the bill and, and the real problem there is is they need to find out how to pay for this bill and like I said um, you know it's about 1.3 1.4 billion a year which is you know 14 13 to 14 billion dollars over a 10-year period and um, there's a lot of lawmakers especially Republicans that don't want to increase federal spending and so if you're going to add any significant funding um, to the annual budget they've got to find a way um, to find that money um, either by reducing funding somewhere or coming up with some new revenue by like, you know, closing a loophole or something like that. And so they've really been searching for a pay for is what it's called. And um, you know, there's one idea on the table right now um, by utilizing a, a bill which is called the Charitable Conservation Easement Program Integrity Act. It's a great ma mouthful, but what that's aimed at doing is actually um, closing a loophole where um, there's certain individuals and, and companies that are using, they're abusing conservation easements um, by creating tax shelters out of them where they can get out of paying taxes. And it's estimated that um, over that same 10 year period that they could save about $7.5 billion um, in, you know, basically by preventing you know, tax fraud. So it creates new revenue there. Um, I don't, that doesn't quite get us to the full 13, 14 billion over that 10 year period, but it makes up a big difference and it starts to, to close that gap. And I think it's really, you know, now's the time. Um, you know, we don't know what's gonna happen after November. Uh, the closer we get to the election, the harder this stuff gets. And, um, you know, right now you've got a place where there's strong support for this bill. Leadership in the different chambers wants to move it. If they can just make a deal um, and find out, a, find a way to get it forward, like it's really, you know, time is precious and, um, and it's time to take, you know, I. One thing I've learned about being in this work is, you know, good ideas, um, you know, can be out there for a long time and not move. And it's really that that moment when um, you have that political opportunity that you need to get them done and take full advantage. And, and right now is, you know, one of those times. And maybe that could be wrong. I mean, maybe it doesn't go this year. Maybe it doesn't go this Congress, and they're able to move it early next year under a new Congress. But um, things look pretty good right now, and I'd take full advantage and do everything I could to get it done. Yeah. So I forget exactly what numbers you said, but uh, just real quick, what were the numbers uh, with the how it passed in the House? Like, what were the numbers? Yeah. For and against? So, so 231 for and 190 against with so 215 Democrats, 215 Democrats voting for it and 16 Republicans voting for it. OK, um, so. What was the argument for the 190 some odd people that were against it? I mean, I think some of it comes down to not having to pay for, right? When you have 42 Republicans saying they'll support it and, um, and only 16 vote for it, that 
is because they still need to figure out how to pay for the bill. I think there's also people out there, um, it runs the gamut, right? You've got folks who are anti-government, they don't support any you know, spending. I think it, watching the, uh, the news or, or looking at Facebook um, and, or Twitter, I should say, posts, it doesn't, it doesn't require a big imagination to see what maybe some of the, the reasons would be. But I think the fact that um, you know, anytime you're talking about a bill that has this kind of money, it's never going to be a unanimous type deal. Unless there's like some sort of national crisis that leads to a moment of unity. Um, this stuff's always going to have some nay votes. And really what it's about is getting um, the critical majority and building as much bipartisan consensus as you can. Uh, and then you become an unstoppable force. But anytime you're talking about something this big, it's just, it's really hard um, to have everybody on board. Yeah. So a, a popular kind of thought in the conservation world is that you know, what's good for an elk uh, is probably good for the, you know, 13 striped ground squirrel or is good for, you know, a, a chipping sparrow or some some animal that is not a game species that also lives in the same habitat. What, uh, what are some of the pressing needs for, um, you know, like I'll, I'll take a Colorado example here, uh, the humpback chub, right? Which is a Colorado uh, native fish. It's one of the only native fish in the Colorado River here that we still have it, that exists in Colorado. Um, like, like what are the specific needs for these kind of niche animals uh, that are not covered by regulations passed for game animals? I think a lot of it's resources, right, and attention. I mean, I think you look at, like, chub species in the Colorado River system, a lot of, you know, their challenges have come down to water temperatures, right, and just dam part of it's dam regulation. I'm sure that there's other issues affecting them as well. Um, but, you know, but with some of these species, like if it's a, let's say it's some, you know, native hunt, like a bumblebee, um, you know, that requires a certain amount of, you know, whatever it is, a, certain sort of woody debris for nesting or I'm not exactly sure I'm not an expert on it but I'd imagine there's some sort of habitat conditions that they need to have but the problem is you don't have enough biologists um you know you talk to game biologists at state wildlife agencies and people working on like elk management and deer management and bighorn sheep management you know they're always um you know stretched um and, and you got to think and they're funded positions right you know through through state you know, license allocation and dollars there. And um, you think about non-game species where there's really not a strong funding source. There's just not enough people out there working on this stuff and paying attention to what needs to happen. And so we don't really even, um, you know, focus on on trying to, you know, make sure that these species are, are numerous and that they're doing well until it's crisis time, right? Until it's almost too late. And so it's really about being proactive, being able to um, you know, monitor these species, have, have the staff resources to, to focus on doing projects or conservation action, actions, whether it be like a conservation easement where you can conserve and maintain that habitat that's needed um, to sustain those species. And so they never, you know, run the risk of, uh, of being threatened or endangered or extinct. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And, you know, I'm sure what uh what is good for the humpback chub is also good for you know golden eye ducks that are migrating down here in the winter you know it's it's all conservation and it's all I, I can't imagine something that is good for a humpback chub being bad for you know other animals um but yeah so 
so aside from this proposed tax loophole, I kind of want to just get back to the money thing real quick here. Um, Are there any other proposed ways to pay for this? Um, You know, I know something that has been thrown around a lot is, you know, a backpack tax um, or some sort of like what they're doing in Colorado next year uh, is you pay $27 on your registration for your car and you get a state parks pass. Um, and that's, that gets you into all the state parks, but it's, you have to like opt out of it. It's, it's going to come standard with your registration unless you opt out of it. Um, so that means that, you know, a certain amount of people are just going to be, see the price tag on it, not going to question it. And they're going to pay for their state parks pass no matter what, even though they probably don't even know that they have the state parks pass. Um, is there anything like that, that is being talked about or proposed to get that funding for Rawa? Yeah. So let me answer your question in two parts. Um, so first off, I want to just sort of cover something that has been a part of the discussion with Rawa for an alternative as a way to pay for it. Um, that's different than this, you know, conservation easement loophole. And then I can talk about the backpack tax idea. Um, you know, I know early on when the legislation Rawa was initially introduced, um, there was some discussion and the original pay for was, was to come from offshore oil and gas royalties. And so, you know, I'm sure you're obviously the land water conservation fund is something you're familiar with. And we've talked about, um, is, you know, a program that uses actually receipts from offshore oil and gas development at the tune of $900 million a year to fund, um, conservation and recreation. Well, there's enough money, you know, coming out of the Gulf, um, through conservation royalties that, People were initially talking about also using that to pay for Rawa. You know, I think that that idea um, is in the past and they've moved past that. I'm not exactly sure what the specifics are and why that didn't work, but it doesn't seem to be viable anymore. And so they've moved to this, um, you know, this conservation easement loophole idea. You know, I think um, it really, you know, whether or not this succeeds or not, I'm not sure either. I mean, I, I would assume that the people who are working this day and night um, you know, are looking at what all the different options are as a, as a way to pay for this and trying to be creative. But also, it's, it not only has to work financially, it's got to work politically, and they've got to be able to get people, both back, you know, both parties to support the idea. Now, now to the backpack tax idea, um, you know, I know that, you know, hunters and anglers, um, you know, we like to brag about um, the fact that we pay taxes on, on firearms and, and fishing tackle and things like that. Um, and there's no similar tax um, on other outdoor recreation gear. So we carry the burden um, of paying for conservation that other user groups, whether it be like mountain bikers or backpackers, don't pay. And so there's, there's long been um, dialogue about, well, why don't we create a backpack tax that you know, adds an excise tax to other forms of outdoor recreation? And I, I think um, that conversation is going to continue. I but I politically, I don't see that as being something that's going to happen short term, nor are there any real serious conversations going on about it right now. Um, you know, I think anytime you want to create a new tax, there's there's just challenges there because of, um, you know, perceived, um, you know, financial burdens uh, on the price of products. I think especially in a time of inflation, that would, um, you know, probably be harder um, but, but also that the industry, you know, group itself generally is sort of worried about that. And so, um, I've heard, you know, every once in a while somebody brings that up, but I don't see it in the short term anyway as being, 
um, something that's that's on the table. I'm curious where uh, where Seek Outside would fall on on something like that, like a 10% excise tax on on backpacks and tents. Yeah, I don't. That's a question for Kevin and Angie, not me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, and here, the thing about a lot of these outdoor companies is, you know, whether it's uh, whether it's Osprey or you know Kuyu on the other end of the spectrum, a lot of these groups are are putting you know both conservation dollars and man, man hours behind you know conservation projects. So I, I don't mean to you know, stick it to the outdoor comp like, Oh, you guys got to pay too. Cause I'm not even sure. I don't know if, because our backpacks are like hunting backpacks, if we have to pay, uh, into Pittman Robertson's PR, um, or not. I mean, I don't are, believe so. Are you, okay. Yeah. So, so we probably don't. Um, so, you know, but I'm not meaning to stick it to concert to outdoor groups for you know being like oh you don't pay but all of us have to because that's a whole different ball game and you know it's it's very understandable um you know an extra 11 percent on you know some of the outdoor gear now uh would be a little it could be a little bit much and it, it could possibly price some people out of you know getting some high quality gear but um definitely I, th I think it's something to consider you know um but yeah it, it is something that i think needs to happen um on to the next question so say rawa doesn't pass this go round. they come into a block with the funding can't get it done it goes on you know congress changes the bill dies um <clears throat> If you can speak with your experience, a, a big, major, changing piece of legislation like this, uh, if it dies, what are the chances that it comes back, you know, whether it's the next Congress or the Congress after that, what are the chances of it, of it being resurrected? Well, I'll just say that the Land and Water Conservation Fund um, and the big federal land maintenance backlog um, funding through the you know, Great American Outdoors Act, that passed when you know president trump was in the white house and the republicans controlled the senate and it was largely because of the politics of the moment and so it is absolutely possible that you know something like rawa could move um let's say one of the chambers in congress you know where to flip the republican um it could absolutely still pass i just you just don't know like what um you know what that the politics are going to be like and and what you know the sort of the overarching tone is of Congress at the, at that time in government. And, and all I know is right now, um, it's got really strong bipartisan support. It has the attention of leadership, which can be hard to get sometimes, right? They're busy people and our issues are not always what they're thinking about. They generally are not. Um, but right now they're willing to move this. And so we're going to keep pushing, um, you know, working with our partners to, to see this done. <clears throat> well, good luck to you, man. I, I really, really hope it gets done and um you know i think any any win for conservation nowadays is is i think this time that we're in right now is the most important time it, it's almost like we're kind of at a precipice for conservation whether it's um you know just habitat loss or uh global warming you know um habitat changing it's it's fighting the good fight that's for sure so like i was saying i'm 
definitely super appreciative of what you guys do at there there at uh, TRCP. Um, I have a, this might be a little curveball question. This, this will be the last question of the day here. Um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but so I've had this idea. Um, the hunting world has been under attack quote unquote recently with, uh, hunting rights, you know, all these, all these, uh, bear seasons and whether it's bear season in Washington being canceled or people trying to cancel the, the cat hunting, uh, season here in Colorado, it seems like the hunting world needs an offensive strategy, um, to get things going back in our favor. What would be, so say a guy like me just wanted to get a movement going where we were going to get a spring bear season back in Colorado. Is that possible for a guy like me to, to be proactive on that? And if so, how would I do that? Boy. Um, <laughs> I know it's a curveball. I mean, I think I can't speak to um, the specifics of a spring bear season in Colorado just because I'm not, you know, working that issue. Um, yeah. Nor, nor am I directly working on the one in Washington. I will say, however, um, you know, oftentimes there's a process that's in place, right? You've got a state fish and wildlife commission that is, you know, either appointed, you know, by the, by the governor or they're, you know, appointed by the governor, confirmed by the legislature, there's different arrangements, but you have a, a commission that's in place, um, that is there to help do season setting. Um, and, you know, to basically set allocation and to sort of decide whether or not, you know, things like spring bear hunting should be allowed. And you've also got professionals working for those agencies. And I think, you know, as long as there's not like some huge sort of state level level politics where the legislature's like blocking that stuff, um, or the governor's got their foot in the door, like working through that process um, is really the best thing that, you know, hunters and anglers, you know, can be doing is working with those biologists, you know, working with leadership at the department, but also working with the commission, getting to know them. Um, so you have a relationship with them and it's all, all this work comes down to relationships and everybody's, you know, this is whether you're working in Congress in DC, um, or working at the local county level or at the state level, like these are all real people we're talking about. And, um, they have feelings just like the rest of us and they make assumptions and, and, and finding out how to build a relationship with them to, develop some understanding and, and hopefully, you know, make your case. I think, you know, if you've got a similar thing like you guys had with the legislature trying to ban um, certain types of hunting, I mean, I, I think there's groups out there like the, you know, like the Sportsman's Alliance. Um, that's really what they focus on is trying to prevent, um, you know, our, our rights from being taken away from us. And, and I think they're, they're really important in that role. Um, but I think having people engaged and, and people who show up and have relationships, but then also being able to to activate your base when you need to in case, you know, A, you need to push something over the top or you need to prevent somebody from taking something away from us is really important. But really it's about how do you build a network, um, making sure you have good ideas that you're a constructive partner, and then you can also turn people out and, and put pressure on when you need to. But really trying to be a constructive partner, I think is what's most important. As long as you're, you know, especially if you're working with honest players who are generally interested in, um, in rolling up their sleeves and sitting down and working with people. Hmm. 
So <clears throat> it's it's not just as simple as creating a petition and getting getting it back on the ballot. Change.org, Shucks. man. So. <laughs> Change.org. Nice. <laughs> I was just I was I'm I've been curious just because, you know, it's like <clears throat> it, it seems like you can just start a petition, right? Some some group wants to end bear hunting in California. They start a petition and you know x amount of people sign it and it eventually gets up to to congress or whoever the state fish and game commission um i was just curious if if that same kind of process could be used to add uh, a hunting right instead of take it away <clears throat> i think that I mean, first off, it's been so easy for people to be engaged using social media and to like use petitions and you know to try and bomb <clears throat> to <clears throat> try and bombard decision makers. That um, I feel like they've you know caught on to the fact that some of this can be you know manufactured fairly easily. I although like true movements um, like we're just thousands, tens of thousands of people um, take action in a short period of time. That stuff's hard to manufacture, but um, a lot of these, you know, change sort of type petitions are, are, you know, something people can put together and they can reach a lot of people really quickly. And I don't, it seems to me that, you know, some of them have an effect. A lot of them don't, they're not enough in and of themselves, okay? I think that they might be helpful to, conver- like if you have conversations that are ongoing, um, you are, you know, working with the game commission, you are, you know, working with the agency staff, you've had some conversations with the governor's office potentially, and like a petition comes in, I think that adds to your cause. I think if all you do is sign petitions, um, you better have a lot of signatures to really shake things up because um, I feel like that stuff happens a lot and um, people have become accustomed to maybe not being as, as shell-shocked by it as they maybe they once were because they've recognized what it takes to pull that together and also when you see a lot of those signatures coming from places like out of state you know whether it be from some coastal city or from london or whatever um they may not carry as much weight as you know somebody who lives in those communities as well that's a good question though i mean I think it's one of the hardest that's one of the hardest things about working on this stuff today is I mean historically I feel like when something wasn't working people would sit down and figure out how you solve the problem right um and and now if like there's a conflict they just want to end everything um you know and, and they'll build a petition or whatever versus sitting down and being like all right you know we've we've had some conflicts with some hunters in this area uh at this trailhead and so you know we're gonna you know i mean there's there's areas like little little closures you could create that allow hunting around it or have like a no rifle zone or or something like that to solve problems or like some of these conversations with trapping that you see um it's like well can't you just sit down and work like what's the conflict sit down work it out and 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 uh you know fix it and, and move on and uh, nobody really loses and uh, i think that a lot of our problems in this society could be worked out if folks were just willing to talk to each other and and try and figure them out um versus when they decide they see something they don't like they want to end it yeah so uh, how does that uh, i mean are you seeing 
How, how long have you been in working in Washington with, with TRCP? So I'm in Montana, <coughs> um, but I... Well, yeah, but like... With TRCP, I've been with it for 14 years and um, okay. in various roles, yeah. But I, you know, I work on Westwide okay. issues, um, but I do, I feel like I've got a foot in both worlds. You know, I've, I grew up in a small town in the West. You know, I, I enjoy our public resources. I use them a lot, but I also work on policy issues that affect their use. But, you know, most people, I mean, hunting, like, you know, public attitudes toward hunting are up, they're as high as they've been in a long time. Um, you know, and I think like people that there are certainly people out there who are advocating, um, against hunting and they are, um, oftentimes, you know, they're, they're sort of trying to pick off, you know, things that, you know, whether attacking dog hunt, hound hunting or things like that is really where they focus a lot of their attention. But, um, like, like they try and figure out if they can, you know, sort of take on a, a small piece of it. Um, but generally for the most part, you know, people are generally, you know, favorable, have a favorable impression of hunting and, and, and are generally, you know, decent to work with of all backgrounds. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and I was just curious because I was, you were talking about how, you know, seems to be that now it's kind of just, it's either on or it's off. Either get this or you don't. You can either trap or you can't. Um I was just curious what your opinion was on why that has changed in X amount of years to why now it's just like you either shut it down or, or it's full blown. I mean, is it like a, is it at a person person level where people are just not sitting down and talking as much? Um, or is it just the way, way people are becoming nowadays? I think it has to do with the fact that people don't talk as much and it's a lot easier to, um, you know, to, to not like somebody and, and to be mean to them or be nasty to them when you don't have to actually, you know, have a relationship with them. Right. And just looking at social media, um, is evidence of, of just how some people, you know, treat each other these days, which results in, in folks, you know, trying to cancel each other. But, um, it's not something we work on. I mean, it's not, you know, TRCP in particular, I mean, we're, we're not really a, a, an organization focused on, on wildlife allocation issues, but and we do weigh in on some of these proposals to end, you know, hunting. Obviously, we care about um, the future of hunting in America, and so we do weigh in on those. There's other groups out there like the Sportsman's Alliance that are, are better positioned for that. Um, but, yeah, there definitely, you know, there, there seems to be a less, less conversation than there used to be, and um, we're really focused on having that dialogue and, and getting to know people, and that's how things get done. Right. Whether it's in your neighborhood, um, in your town or in your state or nationally, um, obviously, those decision makers are representing more people, um, you know, at the, at the sort of higher up you go at, in those different levels. But they're, they're people just the same and, and they do things because of relationships. And so we're really focused on building relationships with folks that make decisions um, that have you know, big national consequences and trying to make sure that they're thinking about hunters and anglers are doing good things for conservation. But ultimately it really comes down to people and, and building those relationships. Yeah. Well, Hey man, you're, uh, you guys are doing good work and I can see why, uh, you know, just in talking here over the podcast and talking with you up in Missoula, I can see why, why people are willing to 
to sit down and talk to you. I've, I've really enjoyed it. So, um, but yeah, man, uh, did you have anything else that you wanted to cover here? Or? I think we're good on the policy front, you know, um, appreciate the time and the questions. Yes. Good questions. You, uh, you probe deep. And so you forced me to think. <laughs> hey, that's, that's what I try to do. I, I'm a lot of this stuff. I'm just, you know, generally curious on. So it, it helps. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm really fascinated with, uh, conservation. Like I, I think I really do believe that we're at kind of a precipice and, um, there's kind of a, a battle line that, uh, that we is whether you're a hunter fisherman or a hiker or backpacker um even if you just like going out to your your city park you really need to think about where we're at and i mean just i think we're almost at a place where and a lot of people talk about this i think we're almost at a place where if we go too far with especially like development right like housing developments and uh like a population is just growing at such a pace although it's kind of been slowing down recently but talk about world population has just been growing at such a pace that man if if we go too far i mean yeah like the population can de decrease one day but the houses and the structures and everything that that we build and destroy is always going to be there you know it, it, well at least in you know for the foreseeable future maybe thousands of years down the line it'll be ground into dust but for now it's going to be there and and um i definitely want to be a, a 95 year old man and be able to go up here in grand junction go up on the monument and and hang out or go, go up on the on the uh, grand mesa here and get destroyed by mosquitoes just because i can um so i i really do believe in in conservation and um so I'm, I'm stoked to have you on the, on the podcast here. So, yeah, and I'm super stoked to be here. And I, it's interesting, like listening to you, you know, say that. And I mean, obviously we have some significant challenges, um, you know, both here in the United States, but also, you know, globally with the environment and other things, um, you know, but so much, I mean, I think my work's given me this perspective, you know, I'm, I'm just so focused on, you ever have like a project where it's a big project, right? Like it's your house or you're like working on a car or something. And it's like, if you look at the enormity of, of it all, um, it's like almost overwhelming. But when you start to like break it into pieces, like I'm going to do this piece of it and then I'm going to focus on that piece of it. I mean, that's so much the way I look at conservation. Like we have all these individual bills um, or proposals that, um, in and of themselves, yeah, they're meaningful, but they don't solve our greatest challenges. Um, but when you look back in 20 years and you've been able to move 50 of them, um, you know, into law and, and they're all doing good work on the ground, like they add up to something real. And, and so much of the way I look at conservation is about, you know, like what are the, the specific challenges that we can address, you know, one by one. And there's other groups out there that are doing, you know, great work. Uh, on things that I'm not working on. And we've talked about a few things that I'm not working on here today, like some of the stuff in state. Um, and, um, but, you know, people focusing on that stuff and chipping away at those things one at a time, like you look back over time and, and that's really how, you know, you do good work over the long term. And, and so right now, you know, RAWA is what needs to pass. And so I think for folks to, you know, 
to go to trcp.org, to go, you know, Google Recovering America's Wildlife Act to find an action alert where you can take action, you know, send, reach out to your lawmaker um, and, and really advocate and ask them to pass RAWA now, I think is critical. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so go to trcp.org. Um, are there any other resources that folks can find information about this aside from just Googling uh, any, any quick links that you could give people to find out more about this? Yeah, I'm looking right now. Okay. And, a lot of and uh, of course, the, 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 the Mapland Act, um, I'm sure people are going to be able to find out much more information about that coming up soon here. Um, but you, you guys probably have a decent amount of information on TRCP about that, huh? We do, yeah. We've got a page for Mapland. Um, you just got a pass, cool. and so really at this point it's about high fives and and looking for the implementation. You know, for Rawa, there's a lot of state wildlife agencies that have supported this. They've been a huge advocate for seeing it move, like the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. Some great resources online about that, but also the National Wildlife Federation has been a real, um, you know, big leader on this bill. But, uh, you know, I think reaching out to your lawmakers, asking them to pass Rawa now is, is super critical. You know, TRCP, we've done our, on our blog and some other places, um, some stuff on it as well, so you can find it through our website as well if you search our blog. Right on. Well, hey, thanks a bunch, man. And um, yeah, like I said, we'll have to uh, hop on, hopefully with a victory lap after Rawa gets passed or, or even just later this hunting season, see, see how it's been going for you. Um, yeah, sounds good. But yeah, thanks a bunch, man. Thanks for jumping on. You bet. You got any tags for the fall?